Please turn with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 4. This is really close to the end of the Old Testament, so you could start by finding Matthew and go back two books. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. Here in the midst of the, we call the minor prophets, minor simply because they're shorter, not because they're less important. So what we're about to read is the very word of God. Before we read, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for gathering us here tonight to hear your word, to listen to your very voice speaking to us in the scriptures. Lord, we pray the same Holy Spirit who inspired Zechariah to prophesy and to write these things for our instruction. Pray that same Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts, enlighten our minds, enliven us to hear with faith and to respond with trusting obedience for the glory of your name so that all of the churches gathered here would be built up by your grace alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Zechariah chapter 4. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of, on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time, I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Amen. During the opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games, 
Uh, some of you may have no noticed that the, the torch lighting ceremonies have become a lot fancier over time. Um, there used to be basically just this one cauldron that would blaze uh, throughout the games. And um, there were some memorable moments when they lit the torches, like when the guy shot the arrow, the flaming arrow up into the bowl. Uh, it was Barcelona in 1992. Some of you may remember the Muhammad Ali in Atlanta in 1996. That was pretty striking. Still just this one cauldron, though. In 2012, in London, the Olympics, it was a little bit different. Um, that year, they had a designer make these 204 separate uh, petals, they called them, representing all the, all the nations gathering for the games. And each one of them uh, caught flame until they sort of brought these individual uh, metal rods up together to combine into the, the torch for the games. But you still could see the individual um, poles or pipes that they were um, resting on top of. It's very dramatic, very cool. Um, now, the Olympic torch, obviously, this is drawn from ancient Greek paganism. Um, my point here is not to celebrate the Olympic spirit or something like that, not at all. Um, that's not why we are here. I bring this up simply to get in our minds that uh, mental image of a great flame lifted up high, drawing everybody's attention, that's ceaselessly burning, and especially that picture of this one great torch, but with these many flames making it up, making up that one great light. It's this very striking visual picture, I think, that I hope will just sort, sort of help us to build a bridge, help to build a bridge for us um, for the very striking visual imagery that Zechariah uses in, this, in describing this prophetic vision in, here in chapter 4. So we're going to look at this chapter in three parts tonight. First will be verses 1 through 5, a picture of God's presence. Second, verses 6 through 10, the power of God's spirit. And then verses 11 to 14 will be the pouring out of God's grace. And we've been going through the Minor Prophets, the Resurrection and Evening Worship. This did happen to be the next passage in line. And as I was thinking about what to preach on, I looked at, well, actually, this is a great chapter for us to share together for all of our churches tonight. And... Um, but because not all of us have been together for the whole series, I thought I'd better back up and get a little bit of a running start to give us some historical context here. Uh, and you should, we should all remember together that Haggai and Zechariah, these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, form a pair, um, both in history and in terms of their message. They were a pair of prophets who preached after the, after the exile to Babylon, so come back to Jerusalem from Babylon, a small remnant of God's people have come back to Jerusalem under the leadership of uh, two people in particular, one being Zerubbabel, the governor, the grandson of the last king of Judah, and um, uh, uh, ever so great-grandson of King David, descendant of David. And then there was also the high priest, whose name was Joshua, Ezra, uh, the spelling is Jeshua, um, and he was, of course, a descendant of Moses' brother Aaron. These two great leaders of God's people, and you can read about this in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. Now, after the people came back from Jerusalem, one of the very first things they did was to start rebuilding the Jerusalem temple 
that had been uh, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's armies. Uh, But if you know this history, then you know that they were interrupted in that building project by opposition from some of their hostile neighbors. Um, And the building work stopped for a long time, more than 10 years. It's a very serious problem. The temple construction had halted. And that is when, as for chapter 5, the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, started telling the people, listen, you need to begin again. You need to finish what you started. You need to prioritize rebuilding the temple because you've been distracted by other things. And so, under the leadership of these two men, Governor Zerubbabel, High Priest Joshua, that is what the people did. They started rebuilding the temple again. They arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, Ezra says, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Okay, so as we get to Zechariah 4 then, Think about what's going on in Jerusalem. The, this renewed temple construction has begun again. It is underway, but it is not done yet. It's underway, but it's not done. And so um, chapter 3 set the immediate context. Chapter 3 was a chapter that focused on one of these two leaders. Chapter 3 focused on the high priest Joshua. In fact, it's a very famous chapter, as, as about as famous as the minor prophets get, uh, where the high priest Joshua is wearing these filthy clothes in Zechariah's vision. And Satan is standing there accusing him before God and saying, if this is what the people's high priest is like, how can, how can this guy be their high priest? How can he offer sacrifices so that the people can draw near to you, God, when he himself is all filthy, covered with his own sin? And so what the Lord does is he takes the initiative to remove those filthy garments from the back of Joshua. And he gives to this man instead clean clothes, these perfect robes of righteousness. And the Lord there is, is doing what it takes personally to provide for his people the kind of high priest that they need kind of high priest that they need to lead them into God's presence. And in the process of doing that, for Joshua, he's giving us also a beautiful picture of what we call justification by faith alone, by grace alone through faith alone. And so now we come to chapter 4. And here in chapter 4, God is going to focus once again on one of these major Jerusalem leaders. Not Joshua this time, but Zerubbabel. So you see how these chapters are kind of a pair. First focusing on Joshua, the high priest, now on Zerubbabel, the governor. And to begin with, the Lord sets the stage. Uh, The angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. Okay. So first, when you hear lampstand, when you hear lampstand, if you know your Old Testament, then hopefully your mind will at least drift towards the book of Exodus. I think I've heard about a lampstand somewhere earlier in the Bible. And you have in the book of Exodus. In Exodus, God is telling Moses how to build the tabernacle the sort of early, first-gen, movable version of the temple, what would later become the temple. 
It would develop into the temple. And in the uh, description of the tabernacle, God tells Moses, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The Hebrew word is menorah, which is familiar to us from uh, modern Judaism. We kind of associate the idea of menorah with Hanukkah, right? Um, But this lampstand in the tabernacle was very special. It was one of a kind. It had seven lamps branching out from the one lampstand, which not only provided light, practically, for the holy place, this lampstand represented symbolically, among other things, uh, the presence of God there. Presence of God. You go on a lot more about the symbolism of the lampstand in the tabernacle, but we'll hold off on that for now and keep going, focusing on what's relevant here for Zechariah, what's most relevant here for Zechariah. So at first you might think, okay, um, surely this is basically the same thing. This must be the tabernacle lampstand or a temple lampstand. Lampstand all of gold, seven lamps on it, same thing we get in Exodus, right? Well, except it goes on. You look more closely at verse 2, it says seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps. So my kids recently have been enjoying telling jokes and riddles, and one of their favorites has been, as I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives, and every wife had seven sacks, and every sack had seven kittens, and so on. So how many were going to St. Ives? And of course there's a trick answer to that. I won't give away, but, but the goal is to get people to start doing that multiplication in their heads. Here, this lampstand has seven lamps, but every lamp has seven wicks. You could say what we're seeing here is not merely the tabernacle lampstand, it's the tabernacle lampstand squared. It's this multiplication of the light of God's presence, this this heightening, this escalation of glory in the presence of God, this glory and wonder filling this prophetic vision. What else does Zechariah see? He goes on, and there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Now, what do olive trees have to do with a lampstand? Well, to run a lamp, what do you need? And all the kids say electricity. You plug it into, well, well, we can rule that out for this period of time. So you might think, okay, well, maybe kerosene. And that would be much more along the right lines, much closer. But, of course, in ancient Israel, they didn't use petroleum-based oil. They would have used a plant-based oil, probably one made out of olives, olive oil to light their lamps. And olive oil you get from olives, and olives you get from olive trees. And so right here, this is the point, right here next to the lampstand, or this lampstand squared, Right next to it is the fuel source, this inexhaustible fuel source that is needed to keep this lampstand lit. There's no threat of the fuel running out or there's no threat of the lampstand going dark because the Lord has set beside it everything that is needed for it to last. Zechariah sees this. Okay, this is pretty amazing, overwhelming, glorious vision. What does it mean? He's wondering. 
is, of course, what we're all wondering, too. Many people reading the book of Zechariah have been wondering that. So when, when Zechariah, uh, the angel says, well, Zechariah, uh, don't you know? Think about this a little bit, Zechariah. And, well, Zechariah answers, well, I, I actually don't know. Could you please tell me? And you might expect at that point the angel would just spell things out for him. Well, here's the symbolism. Here's the interpretation. Let me explain what this all means. And um, It's interesting that the angel takes a different approach. He actually seems to change the subject. And I think the effect here is it's almost like he's saying, without spelling it out, Zechariah, this is not something that I can tell you. It's something I need to show you from yet another angle using yet another word picture. So let's get into the second point, starting in verse 6. We've had this picture of God's presence. Now we want to talk about the power of God's spirit. It says, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Remember chapter 3, focused on Joshua the high priest. Now this chapter is focused on Zerubbabel, the governor, the grandson of the last king, descendant of David. And so when Zerubbabel hears about this lampstand square, this extravagant picture of the presence of God, what is he, as a leader of Jerusalem, supposed to take away from that? What is he supposed to be learning as he leads this renewed temple project. Here is the Lord's message for Zerubbabel, the leader. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Think about it, Zerubbabel did not really have a whole lot to work with. Or what he had to work with, sometimes he might have wished he didn't, as the leader of the people of Jerusalem and of this temple building project. So Zerubbabel had the responsibility of leading a distracted, sinful, weak, and broken group of people who were surrounded by hostile neighbors, who were under the thumb of a distant empire and who had all kinds of baggage that they were carrying from their past and their present and who were constantly at risk of repeating the very same mistakes that had led their grandparents straight into covenant, curse, and captivity. And here they are. Those are the kinds of people who are trying to build a house for God. This rubble is supposed to be leading them. A house that needs to be urgently needs to be holy. And yet, as Haggai describes in Haggai chapter 2, everything they touch, they threaten to corrupt with their own stain of sinfulness. How is this ever going to work? How is this temple ever going to get built? Or if it does get built, how is it ever going to be a fit place for people to worship God? to draw near to him and to know him as their loving covenant Lord. The Lord says, I'll tell you how it's going to happen. And it is, first, I'm going to tell you how it's not going to happen, though. It is not going to happen through your resources, Zerubbabel, through your might or through your power. 
This temple is not going to get built the way that the pagan temples of, of Persia or Babylon get built by the, the sheer force of human ingenuity and wealth and the ability to mobilize thousands of people by brute force to create this awesome monument that is basically to ourselves and not to the Lord. This, this temple in Jerusalem is going to get done in a very different way. It is going to get done by the power of the Spirit of God who is going to work through the weakness of his people, through the weakness of their leaders. And so just as Joshua wore those filthy garments and needed the Lord to cleanse him and to give him a righteousness not his own, so also Zerubbabel is going to need the Lord to give him a power not his own, a might not his own, the power and the might of the Spirit of God to enable this impossible task to be completed. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. This is Paul now, skipping ahead some centuries. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, we assemble our various churches here. There are many things that we have in common, and this is one of them. That Christ is building his church here in State College in the same way as Rubble was to build the temple in Jerusalem. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Not by the tools of brute human strength, but by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, working in wheat sinful, broken people to accomplish God's almighty, strong, irresistible plan. And so, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. That be a warning to us. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. He who glories, as Paul goes on to paraphrase this later, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Uh, some of you know the song that says, Stand up, stand up for Jesus. We sing it all triumphantly and the rousing um, kind of swell of emotion. Yes, we're going to stand up for Jesus, but let's listen to what it says. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor. Peace put on with prayer. This is Christ's armor that we need. We don't have any 
of our own to contribute. See, this is something that all of our churches need to watch out for. The temptation is there all the time for us to get distracted with the methods, formulas, the the, the trends that um, keep cycling through, that drive our culture's obsession with success, with uh, achievement, with influence. And um, for all the common graces out there and the common sense that's out there and the ways that we can garner um, good advice from smart people who have, who have that common sense can help us be more effective at serving God and not getting in our own way and tripping over ourselves. We've got to make sure we get this principle straight, though. What are we trusting? What are we counting on to get the church built? What are we counting on to make sure that the church succeeds in its mission? How are we measuring success in that mission? What does it look like when we imagine, when we visualize that destination and we visualize the path to get there? Is it through our might and through our power, through our cleverness? We've got to remember the Lord Jesus has said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it because it's something that he is ultimately doing and he has called us to join in that mission but to carry it out in his way with the tools that he supplies. This is why we have committed ourselves in our congregations of one mind about this I know we have committed ourselves to the ordinary means of grace the means through which the Holy Spirit has promised and guaranteed that Christ will build his church. The Lord has also promised this. It's relevant as we go on in this passage. Think about that great promise in Philippians that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, God that verse teaches us, is determined to finish what he has started in us as individuals and in the church. That great principle and hope is also pictured and prefigured for us here in Zechariah 4 and what the Lord goes on to say about the governor Zerubbabel. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. The top stone is, there's no mystery here, the top stone is the stone that completes the temple. It's the last one. The one that after you lay that stone, you don't have to build anymore. It's, it's finished, it's done. The Lord is promising here that that day, as distant as it may seem, is going to come. It doesn't matter how remote and impossible it seems at this moment. The Lord is going to see to it by his power that the temple building gets finished here. And Zerubbabel himself is going to place that last stone. God is going to pave the way. That's sort of the imagery here of the, the mountain being kind of flattened out so that Zerubbabel can, take, can move this final capstone, which would probably be pretty large, to the place where it goes. So the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you when Zechariah's prophecy is fulfilled. See, all this is going to happen by the grace of God, and that is going to be obvious because there is going to be no other possible explanation for how this could have happened. 
And then in verse 10, the Lord invites a, a comparison then between that great day of completion and where this all got started. Remember back in Ezra chapter 3, there's a striking story where they lay the foundations of the temple, and most of the people are cheering, but there's the older generation who remember the old temple, the way things used to be, and they were weeping because to them there was no comparison with what they were remembering and looking back upon. They're thinking, this is such a dinky building we're putting up here. It's never going to measure up to the glory days. And so to them, it seemed like a day of small things, which is the phrase Zechariah uses here, the Lord through Zechariah uses here. But see, when God keeps this promise through Zerubbabel, and we see Zerubbabel up there putting the last stone on top, as one commentator explains it, sort of holding the plumb line in place while the builders get that last stone situated, that's the plumb line reference here, just where it's supposed to be. The temple's completed, those kind of naysayers from the beginning are going to see, wow, look what the Lord has done. They're going to rejoice now that his promises come true. Okay. Now, this morning, the symbolism here gets a little bit just tricky, difficult to interpret. I'm going to go a little bit out on a limb, but not too far. The end of verse 10 we could read in a couple of ways, the second half of it when he goes to say these seven are the eyes of the Lord. How does this relate to what comes before and what comes after? We could think, okay, now Zechariah is just shifting gears. He's switching back to the original vision, the lampstand vision, um, and he's not really giving us any segue, and he's just going to explain that the seven main lamps with the seven lips each represent the seven eyes of the Lord. Just to pause, though, before we assume that, we've got to remember this is the second time in two chapters that Zechariah has brought up this idea of seven eyes. And last time in chapter 3, those seven eyes were connected with a single stone. You could just glance back at chapter 3, verse 9. A stone he set before Joshua, a single stone with seven eyes. And I just want to suggest that there's likely a symbolic interrelationship between that stone, the capstone going on top of the temple, and the seven lampstands or the, seven, uh, the lampstand with the seven lamps. What if that stone and the capstone that completes the temple are the same stone, or at least, at least closely conceptually connected and, and inter- interwoven then with the sevenfold uh, lampstand? What I think all three are setting before us is this manifold presence of God who is watching over his people, watching over all of his creation all the time and over Israel in particular, over Jerusalem in particular. Think of Psalm 121. Behold, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord never stops watching over his people. The last thing that Zechariah asks about is the two trees then, and the, particularly the two branches of them uh, that are sort of feeding into the lamp, this golden oil pouring from these branches into these pipes that then feed the flame so that the lamp will never fail. And the angel's um, answer is, well, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of of the whole earth. Now, again, the symbolism is getting tricky here. There's some difference of opinion about who these two figures are. Um, Not everybody would agree with me, but my instinct is that the Lord has in mind here uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel. These are these two leaders that the Lord has appointed to convey his own leadership and care of his people 
to the people of Jerusalem. But as soon as we say that, we have to understand that the Lord is not so much exalting, elevating these two individual men for their own sake. These offices, these offices that, Je- that Joshua and Zerubbabel hold are much bigger than those two individual men. They point far beyond those men, far forward to a time in history when both priest and king are going to come together in one person with a capital P. And you know who I'm talking about here, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both our great high priest, offering himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice on our behalf, dying on the cross for our sins. And he is also our reigning king who rose from the dead. And who now, from the throne of heaven, is doing what? He's pouring out upon us his Holy Spirit who is present with us, who is Christ's very presence with us. Go to Revelation and see John, the vision he gets in the throne room of God in the, in the presence of Christ with the lampstands showing Christ's presence with the churches as the Holy Spirit brings us that light and life and power of Christ so that Christ's kingdom may be built up and thrive and grow through the proclamation of his word, not by our might, not by our power, but by his spirit. That is something that is exciting and hopeful to be a part of. Is it very impressive to most people today? No, it's not. Um, In the church, especially little Reformed churches, we live constantly, it feels like, in a day of small things. That is our lane. Um, The stuff that God has called us to do is often very ordinary. It's often very humbling. It often involves suffering. It often involves self-denial, putting one foot in in front of the other with a cross on our backs to serve him, to serve each other under hard and sometimes exhausting circumstances that don't make sense to us half the time. It is a day of small things, and the temptation is always there to despise it. The thing, what are we even doing here? Forgetting where Jesus told us all along, well, my kingdom is like a mustard seed. My kingdom is like a little bit of leaven. It's this tiny thing, but you would not believe how much power there is there for it silently and gradually by my almighty power to grow for the salvation, the rescue, and the growth of men and women and boys and girls to spread through the whole earth. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what he's doing in our churches today. See, through Zechariah, the Lord is opening our vision up to see with the eyes of faith the heavenly reality that he is with us and watching us. The lampstand with us and watching us. He's also showing us that he is providing his church with an inexhaustible supply of everything we really need. It's the olive trees from the hand of Christ, our priest and king. And he's also showing us that he who began this work of temple building 
He's determined to complete it until the day the Lord Jesus Christ comes. And the Lord Jesus puts the crowning capstone on the finished temple building of the church when he finishes all of his work and he presents us to his heavenly Father complete and holy with no more stain, no more sin. And all of the sheep have been gathered in down to the last one. And all of the tears have been dried down to the last one. And all of the suffering is over. So the big question is, then: now what do we do? Because obviously today's not that day. Well, there's a few hours left. Come, Lord Jesus. I mean, seriously. But what was the application for Zerubbabel? You know, I think for him, a big part of it, the next day, was probably, yeah, I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to do it again. I'm going to lead these people in another day's work, another layer of masonry. Another trowel full of mortar. For you it might be another, another diaper change. Might be another day at the office. Might be another night at the church building or in somebody's home. Somebody's crying. Somebody needs your help. Could be another, another evening with family devotions. Squirming little ones. Could be another joint service. Or another Sunday morning with God's people. But as you do each one of those things, and so many more that Christ has called us to in various parts of our lives, the Lord, through Zechariah, would have you to see tonight that this is part of something glorious. Yes, it is small. Yes, it is not very mighty or powerful. But the Lord is in it. His spirit is at work. Not just for the construction of the temple here, but of the temple here. And that great work of salvation that he has set about, he is absolutely going to finish. You can count on it. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your word has told us that it is not by might, not by power, but by your spirit. And so, Lord, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.